0: Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kopchand, and my guest today is Charlie Robertson, who, I kid you not, is probably the most knowledgeable person that I've come across on the nature of emerging and frontier markets. His most notable experiences entail being the chief economist at Renaissance Capital, the premier emerging markets investment bank, and one of the first movers in both post-USSR-Russia, Russia, um, but also this has entailed uh, participating in landmark transactions that are the first of their kind in regions ranging from Mongolia to Rwanda. Um, Charlie is also the author of two fantastic books, one being The Fastest Billion on Africa's economic story in the 2010s, and the other that he's more recently released and published called The Time-Traveling Economist, which focuses on the three, what he says are the three uh, keys to unlocking broader growth in an economy, literacy, energy, and fertility. He has recently moved to the buy side at FIM Partners, where he invests across various frontier markets. Um, And so without further delay, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with uh, Charlie. And I guess we'll be starting by walking down memory lane, you started your career focusing on economies in Central and Eastern Europe, including the Baltic States. Um, This is a very special time as the USSR had collapsed, assets were being privatized, there's just massive turnover. I would love for you to share the uh, narrative and observations of what you kind of saw and learned from your time focusing on these markets early in your career.
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, it was an amazing time because you had a load of countries that had been cut off from from the rest of the world for 50 years and had so lost their way in terms of growth, in terms of uh, economic output, so lost their way that they were incredibly cheap and so badly organized. The communist system was, was so inefficient that when they finally uh, emerged as kind of trying to be capitalist countries, the, the asset prices were just incredibly cheap. And... I was lucky enough to kind of graduate and be seeking a job with an interest in, in Eastern Europe at the very time when well, these incredibly cheap assets were available. Uh, there was talk of privatization, which had been kind of pioneered in the 1980s from New Zealand to, to the UK. And, um, and they were just beginning to join the emerging markets as well. So I think, I think uh, Poland got its MSCI emerging market kind of membership in 94, Czech and Hungary in 96. Uh, and and I was already writing about those countries, just for a little research company called Hilfer, selling research to banks. I didn't know much, but then luckily nobody else did either. So everybody was on this kind of learning curve. Um, and, and if you could get through to somebody at the Central Bank of Poland who spoke English and could explain what they were doing uh, on a daily basis, this is pre-internet. It was, it was just goldmine. So it was, at least it was useful anyway. And, and I think my working assumption for those countries at the time was they were just going to converge back to, to West European levels, back to where they'd been in the 1920s and 30s. People forget Czechoslovakia was the eighth biggest economy in the world in the 1930s. So the odds that it was going to come back was it felt obvious. And it felt to me that um, the rest of Eastern Europe would follow. Um, and so it was quite easy to be bullish, particularly in those those first few years when when markets were rising. George Soros was investing in Russia for the first time in '97. It felt like, it felt like the whole region was on the up. Um, so
0: it was no, it was it was brilliant. The 1990s were really quite special. Incredible. Um, could you share more about that combination of? badly organized or mismanaged assets that were kind of coming online, the extent to which some of these were badly organized, one. And two, could you share a bit more about what the kind of fog of war in terms of the information landscape was like um, during that time as well? Yeah, the
1: information landscape was was so minimal. I mean, if you didn't get on a plane and go and visit these countries, which I couldn't do actually in that first research job, there was no budget for it, Um, but I ended up joining ING in 98. And uh, within just after the Russian default, actually, on their domestic debt and their ruble collapse, and you fly out to Bulgaria, you fly out to Romania, and you actually start to meet people on the ground. And the discrepancy and just opinion was was fascinating. I remember having a long argument with a Bulgarian about who was going to join the EU first. Uh, she, she was convinced it would be Serbia. I was sure it would be Bulgaria because I'd been to Brussels and I'd spoken to the officials there. I knew that that was going to... That was going to open up a path for Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, Czech, all of these countries. That was going to transform their economies. They were going to be given money to build roads. They were going to be given money to improve their judiciary. They were going to be uh, foreign direct investors were going to put factories there because they were seen as the cheap labor source for Germany. You could see all of this coming. Um, and, and then there was the eventual euro convergence trade story. And all of this was, was, was tremendously positive. Uh, and it worked. And and very broadly, these countries, you go to Poland now, you go to Czech Republic, Slovakia, they feel and function much like many other countries in the rest of the European Union. Um, Where it didn't work, where you didn't get that natural reconvergence with with the West was, was actually in Russia. And those countries that had been communist since 1920, instead of 1945, they never succeeded in making the transition as well um with with three exceptions actually the baltic states estonia latvia and lithuania they they were special they admittedly hadn't been communist until 45 uh they'd been independent in the 20s no one i think believed that that was really going to make that much of a difference but it it really seems to have done so i mean there's something in the fact that your granddad worked in a you know in a private sector firm seems to have been one of the factors along with a lot of swedish and finnish support and danish support for these countries having actually some of the strongest success of any country in eastern europe
0: um, they've done extraordinarily well fascinating are, are there any insights that you think come from that era for folks who are looking at say uzbekistan right now which is going through its own kind of privatization yeah. and opening up so yeah I'm, st-
1: I'm still surprised i had to give a presentation in new york a few years ago about central asia and um when I was running the numbers and looking at per capita GDP being sub $1,000 versus 10,000 plus in places like Kazakhstan and Russia, and you suddenly realize how far those countries fell when the collapse of the Soviet Union happened. Because the whole system in the Soviet Union was based on, you know, build a car with the tires made in Uzbekistan, say, the engine made in Ukraine, and, and then the body made in, in in Russia. And when trade barriers came in and Individual currencies came in and economic chaos uh, erupted. So nothing was getting built industry collapsed um, and and the huge inefficiency of energy supply in russia, which they've they've done quite a lot to resolve over the last ten twenty years, but not not totally but uh, even now you've got Russian houses where you open a window to let the heat out uh, in the winter because you don't control the heating it's all controlled at some central control plant somewhere. And uh, and so to re- to make your flat a bit cooler so you can bear to be in it in the evenings and the winter, you have to open up windows. Our incredible inefficiency still exists. So, so places like Uzbekistan actually should be some winners now. That Central Asian story, they've fallen so far, but the education levels are still good. The infrastructure is actually still good. Uh, and I think governments have begun to focus more and more on decent reform, particularly in a place like Uzbekistan. Um and I think there's a lot of investor optimism about Uzbekistan now. It's a country I was supposed to go to in um twenty twenty and COVID managed to stop one of those first conferences as it opened up, but I'm gonna get there in the end. Um uh, and, and see for myself. But you know, at the moment it's it's seen as a low risk, high growth, high population growth, good education, all round decent story.
0: Interesting. How about if we're kind of shifting to the other side here, um geographically? What about Ukraine, given the kind of construction narrative after the war? What are your thoughts on, on that?
1: Yeah, I, it's the first published piece I ever did on Eastern Europe was Ukraine. I was talking about hyperinflation in '94 and them giving up their nuclear weapons to Russia, which everybody thought was a really good idea at the time. Um, anyway, that was that that was curious because Deutsche Bank, I think it was in 1991, has said of all of the republics that were going to do well. of the Soviet Union. It was bound to be Ukraine that would do best. It had the beautiful black earth, the deep fertile soil, uh, excellent history of agricultural produce, steel mining in the east, steel furnaces and so on. I mean, it it looked like a, a winner and cheap, a cheap market. And as Poland became expensive, there was a lot of people assuming Ukraine would be like Poland's, like Poland was to Germany, Ukraine would be to Poland. And yet, and yet, that, that divide that Samuel Huntington talked about, the clash of civilizations, which said, you know, you're split along kind of religious lines, or often religious in his book, uh, or, or cultural lines, that, that tears down the middle of Ukraine, that I read in the 1990s and thought was far too pessimistic, actually has proven to be fairly prescient. And we've seen that constant, back and forth over political direction of the country um, and, and division within the country, coupled with, I think, a problem of leadership in Ukraine, which was back in the Soviet day, the top people all went to Moscow. That was the goal. That was the, if you're the best central banker, you'd go to Moscow. If you're the best diplomat, you'd go to Moscow. And, and so I wonder whether the quality of government was just that little bit not quite so good in Ukraine. Um, And and a lot of that corruption inheritance, which has been such a problem for so many countries of the CIS, not so much the Baltics again. They were different. But the CIS countries like Ukraine, like uh, Georgia for a long time, uh, Russia, certainly um, Central Asia, that that really hurt Ukraine, too. So you've got quality people. Um, That good trade connection story to Western Europe is valid. but. But this, this, the politics is, as managed, and that cultural tearing of the, of the country apart has certainly been a, I think, an obstacle for it. I'm still hopeful that one day it'll come through. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been really tough. And, and clearly, I mean, clearly, the big obstacle at the moment isn't Ukraine, anything within Ukraine. It's it's external to the fact that, that Putin doesn't want to see a successful
0: Ukraine. Evidently, evidently, I'm I'm wondering. Uh... One thing that I quite enjoy is your kind of uh, combining of the quantitative as an economist, but also the qualitative here as you just tapped into history. What is your kind of framework for thinking about and weighing these different factors when it comes to an assessment on a region? Well, it's changed now uh, because it's become more quantitative.
1: Um, As I finally worked out in in writing The Time Travelling Economist, what, what it is that seems to be a common theme for all countries which is these issues of when do you educate your, your your people? The country that first took off is Scotland. Why? Because they had nearly 100% literacy in 1700. Why? Well, that was a religious reason. It almost doesn't matter why. But what it does matter is that Scotland became the country that could have led the Industrial Revolution. If only they'd had cheap energy, which luckily their next door neighbours, the English, did. So the Scots moved down to England and created a, an industrial revolution in England instead. Uh, and those countries take off. And when I look at any country in the world now, I ask when did their adult literacy hit 70%? Japan was there in, by 1900. So Japan became the first country in Asia to, to industrialize and take off. Um, and, and now the first country to show us what aging populations really look like. Um, when, you, when you go to... Uh, Latin America. The success stories. The only successes in the 1980s, I would argue, were Uruguay and Chile, both countries that happened to have that 70% adult literacy threshold uh, in the 1970s. So you get you get that right. You can then place any country on on its economic trajectory, and you know when it's going to take off and for how long. Um, so that's. That's really important. The energy side is really important. And and the surprise to me was the demographic argument, which I always ignored at the beginning. Back in the 1990s, you sit there in your 2020s and a year feels like quite a long time. Five years feels like an eternity. When you get to my age, 25 years doesn't feel like such an eternity anymore. And you suddenly realize what a powerful powerful story demographics really is. Um, I underestimated it in the 1990s. Uh, and and I'm trying to rectify that now, so you know that that plays a key role too, and that that's a function of education again. When you're less well educated as a country, you tend to have big families, you have higher population growth, you tend to be in poverty. Um, so that's uh, anyway. There's a whole load more extra stories
0: we could di- diverge into there, but well, one thing I actually want to double click on here is the method of increasing literacy within a country or within a region, um, what tends to be the bottleneck for a country? Because it seems like such a, as you mentioned, a low-hanging fruit um, with such high dividends in the longer term. Um, what, what kind of gets in the way of a country doing that, say a Sierra Leone or something along those lines? I think, I think the problem at the
1: beginning is there just isn't enough people who are educated themselves. Um, there's a famous statistic, which isn't quite true, uh, that there were only 30 graduates in Congo Democratic Republic of Congo, Zaire as it became, when it became independent in 1960s. And 30 graduates, 30 graduates, and they've probably all done History of Art at the Sorbonne. I mean, this was not helpful for even filling a cabinet, let alone a ministry, let alone a school. So if you don't have educated people, how do you, it takes decades, generations, before you can start to create enough educated people. And then focus on this need, because even today, we're seeing coups in uh, Gabon and uh, Niger. Um, now, actually, in Niger or Mali or Burkina Faso, I would attribute this to a lack of education. I don't think they recognize that the low growth, the lack of growth, the high population figures, and all of the problems in these countries is stemming from the lack of education. It becomes easier to blame France, um, Yeah, Marxist economics. Blamed capitalists. Um, you had the whole dependency theory of the 1960s, which just blamed the, nor- the rich North holding down the global South. Uh, that idea hasn't completely disappeared. People still think it's. Some people still think that's the the, the story. Um, I think I think it's really very clear from the data is education. But what I'm saying is that an awful lot of people didn't get it. So even when you educate the people, even when you do know this is the focus. Um, there are ways to speed it up um, from Cuba to, to Stalin's Russia. They, there was mass focus on education for political reasons. They wanted everyone to read the propaganda and, and it worked. Um, Castro managed to, I mean, Cuban literacy was already quite high uh, in the 50s. It was much higher than most countries in the Caribbean. But he made sure it was 100 percent by sending kids as young as 10 off to live for a year with illiterate families in, in rural Cuba. So they jumped to 100% very quickly. The Koreans did it as well in the 50s. It went from something like 30% to about 90% in, in just 15 years, while a country like Niger is still at 40% today. It was about 5% when the French ran it, 3%. So it's, it's got up 40 percentage points in 60 years. Korea managed 60 percentage points in, in just 15 years um,
0: what so, were the main levers that South Korea, that, that Korea, or South Korea, I'm guessing it's South Korea here, um, pushed to kind of make that happen?
1: They started with, well, I think they were partly in com- competition with North Korea, because North Korea was looking at the Soviet Union and saying, okay, we can do that too. So they claimed 100% literacy within about 12 months. The South Koreans got jealous and, uh, and, and certainly focused on it. But they, they, again, just made it a huge priority. Um, I think there was an awful lot of pressure on everybody to get that, that adult education. It didn't help. In the 50s, if, if people, anyone's watched MASH, this old American sitcom, Korea was a poverty-stricken country in the 50s. Uh, people say Korea and Ghana had the same per capita GDP in 1960. So just educating your people doesn't give you a direct payoff. And I, and I think that's... If you're a government, I was talking to a minister in... in uh, from Liberia, the infrastructure minister. And I said, why didn't you? You know the value of education. Why didn't you focus on it more? And he said, well, we could do night classes for adults to send them to school, or we could have power for the hospital to operate on people who are going to die. What do we choose? You can't do both. There isn't the money. And, and he says that is the sort of challenge you're constantly... Do you want a bridge to connect these two towns that will raise economic output and taxes and that'll give the government more money in five years' time to do both things? Or do you just sort out the education today with no payoff for at least five years? Probably not for 15. It's, it's extremely difficult, which is why it takes a long time, usually. I mean, it took Europe a long time, in fact, to get educated. Um, but, uh, but we're getting there. I mean, in the whole world today, there's maybe 100 million people living in countries where sub 50% adult literacy. So, out of you know 8 billion people, that's really pretty extraordinary. And this is why the world's richer than it's ever been. So We're getting there. We're getting
0: there. Onwards and upwards. I like the uh, final note of optimism, despite that really difficult decision making that you just described from that minister. Um, if we're kind of just going back for a second, continuing down, kind of you know Charlie's trip. Down memory lane, uh, can we dig deeper into your time at ING, in particular uh, during that kind of timeline? What were some of the kind of big uh, insights, changes in your kind of conception of these markets, but also just big events that kind of took place within the markets that you were covering um, whilst you were there? I think the
1: first big one was was recognizing what this convergence trade, uh, which is a little. You know a bit geeky financial market stuff, but Italy Spain Greece Portugal as they joined the euro, their interest rates collapsed down to German levels, and the consequence of that was more consumption more uh, higher house prices uh, boom time for for many of these countries um, and because I'd sat next to a guy for three years who'd spoken about nothing else than these four countries with that convergence trade um, I was expecting that we would see the same in in Central and Eastern Europe um, and and that was a bit of a surprise when i when I took it to people in Romania I think it was in two thousand and said you're going to get the euro one day uh, and and that then justifies this this assumption of falling interest rates and that's going to help drive growth though so i I was looked at like a madman they were right actually Romania still hasn't got the euro twenty three years later but but for the, for the early 2000s, it was a very powerful um, sense of confidence that Central Europe was going to make it. Um, so that, that was probably key. Second big story, I think, was was maybe 2004, when Putin goes after Khodorkovsky and the Yukos oil company. So Russia was beginning to build companies that were doing well. They built... They'd had democratic elections, uh, which Putin had won in 2000. And, and it felt like Russia was, was, was heading in a certain direction. Um, I think 2004 was the kind of 2003-4 was that first big sign that there was going to be limits on, on that story. Um, and in fact, Russia could be turning in a different direction. It wasn't obvious until quite a few years later to most to everyone, but, um, but I think that was the first sign. Yeah. And then there was just a few other examples of, of of how politics can really make a difference. Georgia. You had this Rose Revolution in Georgia, um and in two thousand three and in this incredibly corrupt regime where it was overthrown um and uh the, the new the new president came in and sacked every single policeman, I think, as I recall, um, on the assumption they were all corrupt. And they were all just the whole system was just a disaster, and yet within a few years, Georgia became this kind of beacon of of fast growth and recovery kind of what we're talking about is Uzbekistan a few a few minutes ago that they really had i mean the country didn't function the electricity system had just failed for months at a time it was a it was a catastrophe, and yet he turned it around and brought it back and that that's and built such resilience that even when they had a conflict with Russia in 2008, you know, still the economy's done well since then, um, still doing well now. So, the importance of politics and, and leadership when you get good leadership, as we saw in Singapore with Lee Kuan Yew back in the 1960s onwards. Uh, yeah, anyway, so that was a, that was an interesting lesson.
0: What is it that you think makes for a good political leader in these incredibly tough circumstances, especially when it comes to dealing with uh, say elite networks that tend to be somewhat corrupt or enmeshed in certain ways. What what is it that enables someone to be a Lee Kuan Yew or a kind of Prime Minister of Georgia and jump out of that or a Kagame, for example, as opposed to what seems to be the easier thing, which is to uh, patronize your 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 network in that sense?
1: Yeah, I I firstly I don't think you can predict it. Um secondly I think we shouldn't rely on it because it's too much to chance. I've had too many conversations with people. I'm mean, actually this morning talking about Nigeria needs a Lee Kuan Yew. If Nigeria waits for a Lee Kuan Yew, the odds are it'll never happen. People like that are very rare. Um, I, In fact, I think we make a mistake in the main by over attributing economic success to leaders that one of the bits of work that came out of The Time Travelling Economist was this idea of the, I say it's like my idea, the double demographic dividend. It's not, it's not my idea. I'm just repeating what loads of smart people have said in the past. But when you've got a very high proportion of your population who are of working age, you achieve high growth. Um, and they tend to have good savings because they have less kids, because they're well educated, better educated than their parents. Less kids, more savings and they're all of working age, and you boom. Now, there's very few countries that have squeezed that demographic dividend into a kind of a toothpaste tube and, and shot it out as much as the Chinese. And that really is, you know, they've totally given themselves 30, 40 years of stunning dividend, which is coming to a very abrupt end right now, which is why growth has collapsed from 10% down to 4 Most countries spread it out, but you still get 40, 50 years of good times. And if you get elected in those good times, everyone says you're great. You know, People look back to the 1950s in Europe and say, "Oh, all these leaders were so good. Or were they? Or was this just they happened to be in power at the right time? That's, I think, much more of the story. You know, when I look at Asia today, I look at India, Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia. They're all growing at Bangladesh, five, six, six and a bit percent. It's not because one of them's got Modi. They're all good. But all the circumstances are good, Okay, this is my point. And, and the leadership doesn't matter. When you, what's different about Ali Kuan Yew is he takes a country that shouldn't work, that, that in fact couldn't work. It was joined together with Malaya to be Malaysia because people didn't assume that Singapore could, could have a viable independent future. And yet breaks convention. Um, that's the special story. And I think what was special again about Georgia was it would have been too easy to say that country was going to stay corrupt forever. It had been corrupt back in the, in the Soviet days um, when they had all the fruits and the cognac and people would go on holiday in the beaches there. It was, you know, it was always the easy life down there. But but he's also created something different.
0: I, I want to continue zooming in here, in particular on this question of going against the grain. Um, when one looks at a lot of Western countries today, they are on the tail end of what seems to be as you mentioned the opposite of a demographic dividend yeah, yeah, yeah. as far as you have this fertility crisis you know the opposite of kind of what you've spoken about in the book i'm curious have you come across be it theoretical ideas or practical kind of policy practices for countries to think about what the playbook in the you know uh, western coach developed world will look like to ensure that we don't have you know stagnation and stasis in lieu of uh, these these tides going against them in some sense. I I mean I I think there's a there's
1: two or three issues there. I mean, one is the extending the retirement age, and that's going to happen. Uh, we're going to see more robots coming in and doing a whole load of jobs, and, that, and that's going to happen too. there's an issue about how much can savings really increase. The big shift in savings when you go from subsistence farmers with nothing to textile workers. Earning virtually nothing, but able to save a little to kind of the middle class jobs which most people in Europe or the States might have, or many people have got, you've had that big jump. I'm not sure that we get another jump like that. So I assume growth is gonna be what, two percent a year on average for the next forever. And that's not very exciting. So no, no, I haven't focused much on it because it's I feel that for the countries that I am interested in, um, they're going to have that lead example of Europe to look back to. The, the key thing, which I do think is a problem, is that today The Economist is so obsessed by this ageing issue that, that, that the front page of The Economist is regularly about the ageing of Europe, the ageing of East Asia. Uh, how do we deal with these ageing problems? And, and that magazine gets read everywhere. So, so in countries where actually the focus should be on how do we get older? How do we speed up our ageing? which is the issue for sub-Sahara. They're too young. Some countries are too young. There's no savings. There's too much population growth. The, 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 the message from the global media is completely the opposite and, and to what they need, and that is a problem.
0: You, you've hit upon something very interesting here, which I feel like you are uniquely positioned to answer, which is what does the information flow look like for, say, ministers, decision-makers, people who are kind of running these conglomerates in uh, these emerging and frontier markets, um, how does it kind of differ to other, to to the information flow of other regions? And like, what are the main things that kind of like act as inputs into their kind of like mental models for thinking about these types of things?
1: I I think it's, that's a curious question because I mean, I always get struck where did I, I think it was Theresa May resigned or something on when I was on some trip or Liz Trust was having a crisis in the UK and I was walked into the Rwandan development board in Kigali and, that's, that's what's being shown on the TV, in the lobby. It was BBC News. The number of times I've been into Turkish offices where they're playing you know, CNBC Europe, trying to keep an eye on the markets, or Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg more in the banks and the private sector. But it's amazing how much of that headline media that, that we're getting in, in London or New York um, is, is also being consumed um, around the world. So there's a, in that regard, I think it's become a far more global story. You know, when I first was going to Turkey back in the '90s. I used to go and buy my Financial Times that was two days old in uh, in Ankara, and I knew there was one shop I could go and get it. And it was, I mean, it was just you've got no idea what's going on. You're so far behind. And kind of, uh, it's it's a real it's been a real sea change. Um, but I think what else was different. And I think the well, I think the fundamental of the difference is is the local media. So it's super vibrant. You go to somewhere like Nigeria, massive numbers of newspapers, all in print, still being published, in in the ways that the you know made that we would have seen in London thirty years ago. Um, and plus plus vibrant radio, plus TV blaring out everywhere, and this access to you know CNN and CNBC, CNBC Africa and so on. So it's just a it's it's um, the big difference is the local story and the local focus.
0: Very interesting. I found it notable when I was learning about Sierra Leone, Tanzania and Nigeria, that the broadest form of distribution was radio. Um, I thought it would have been yeah, yeah. In, like mobile phones, but I was very surprised by that. Um, yeah. Digging, get stuck in a lot of traffic jams in
1: Tanzania and uh Nigeria, and so it really and Egypt, so it really does help to have um, have the radio on and a bit of music playing and the news coming on.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, moving on from ING, uh, you join Renaissance Capital and you've been there for 12 and a half years, you've recently uh, left to work at FIM Partners. Um, would you be able to share a bit of a kind of origin story of the firm and kind of contextualize the history of the firm? Um, and what it kind of like does it does right now um, for for listeners because I think they played a kind of a key role in kind of shaping emerging markets.
1: Which which one? Uh, let's start with Renaissance Capital. I think that was um, you know that was set up by the guys from Credit Suisse uh, mostly Credit Suisse people and they'd gone out there in 93, 94, when Credit Suisse is big. You know they take they take punchy bets I um, love that, and yeah. <laughs> uh, that hasn't hasn't paid off recently. But back in the day they were the first big bank i think to to be opening up a, an office in in moscow and they did extremely well and the team that went out there saw so many opportunities and felt that this is all well and good but but why should it all go back to switzerland when it could be um when it could be growing a business in russia and and they did uh, they expanded fast there was a big hiccup in 98 with the russian devaluation and um and the guy Stephen Jennings who who was then then became the CEO after that held on and and he was right to do so the russian economy collapsed i think to the size of belgium's in 98 99 and you know within 20 years it was it was one of the top 10 economies in the world and renaissance capital was the most effective investment bank operating in the country at the time but what he then did which i found so attractive to in terms of joining was was to recognize that a similar opportunity might exist in another part of the world that the world had had missed they missed russia in the beginning of the 90s um and he felt they were missing africa in the 2000s um so came in set up offices across the continent not in south africa that wasn't you know that was a well-known market there was no need to set up in south africa um but set up in nigeria and kenya ghana Zambia, Zimbabwe, and I think revolutionized investment banking. The number of alumni I've met across the continent who have worked at one point or another for Rencap is, 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 is like, incredible. So that, that made them cutting edge. They'd been cutting edge in the, in the mid-90s in Russia. They were cutting edge in Africa. Um, and and it actually, interestingly, joining FIM Partners, that was also a cutting edge firm. When it started up in in 2008, they were focusing on frontier markets like Qatar, UAE, which at the time just no one was paying attention to. They weren't as part of indexes. They weren't things that any global investor had to own. Um, And yet, Hedy, the guy who set it up, recognized the opportunity there. Uh, And again, like Rencap back in 98 with the Russian hiccup, you know, there was the hiccup of 2008-9 when the oil price collapses and suddenly... It's not, it's not the easiest first year or two, um, yet holding out, seeing these countries' economies recover, Dubai, which everyone was writing off as a property crash bound to happen, coming back as it's done repeatedly. Um, I think uh, he's also taken that approach, the frontier markets are, are the new emerging markets and still uh, there's, there's space to, to outperform by, by knowing them
0: well one thing i want to kind of share which i'm sure you're aware of but um because you mentioned uh russia's devaluation the shrinkage of the economy to the size of belgium and then kind of like ballooning back to a top 10 economy um you know the the integrity slash stomach that one needs to hold through a situation like that it is quite tough and one of my favorite anecdotes is um of adolf lunden this investor who actually was one of the people who if i'm not mistaken discovered the first major natural gas reserve in Qatar. Um, and he um, had invested in Gazprom during its kind of like time in Russia. And he sat through three different instances of Gazprom, his, his stake in Gazprom going down by about 98%. In the end, it was like a 100X kind of investment on its kind of principle. But experiencing that three times and holding through when you've seen it go up and down is like quite the uh, muscle to exert emotionally and cognitively.
1: Yes, no, I think it's. Uh, but I think it's. whether you like that or not? And if you don't like that, then there's plenty of markets and plenty of countries to go and find plenty of other jobs. Um, and if you do like it,
0: municipal bond in the U.S.
1: It's, it's, <laughs> well, <laughs> something like that. But there's always the. Um, but if you if you find the the change in the exhilaration interesting, then uh, then these are these are these remain fantastic markets. Uh, we just seen our bonds, bonds dropped 10 points on the day uh, with with the reports of a coup this morning so it's it's been
0: yeah it continues to be fascinating um, as as a market area but uh, could you share more about some of the interesting moments and lessons from the africa expansion of renaissance capital in the 2010s well that
1: was a that was a that was an interesting there was there was the boom up until 08 when for the you know countries like Ghana were just issuing first bonds. Um, Zimbabwe was looking actually like a market that could work. Um, back in the day, it is true once upon a time, um, and and a country like Nigeria was walking into the global financial crisis with sixty billion dollars of reserves, um, and managed and weathered it incredibly well. I mean, it was actually a big deal for me because I still a little uncertain back then as to whether or not this was just the 2007-8 rise of Africa was a, a short-lived experiment on the back of super loose policy from the Fed for too long, which had contributed to, to asset bubbles everywhere, or, or whether there was something real to it. And I think what 2007-8 showed us was that there was something real to it. Sunusi, the guy who became central bank governor in Nigeria after that, that global financial crisis, just one of the best I've ever met. Um, and when you start to see quality like that, you think, okay, okay, this is, this is, this is where you can tell that something's changed on a country. And I think it was. So, so there was that. Then you had the, you know, the Africa Rising. But then you had the commodity crash of twenty fourteen fifteen, and suddenly a whole chunk of the progress that was made, we saw significant step backs um, with FX restrictions, actually in Egypt, which wasn't. Sp- Directly affected in the same way from oil, but uh, to Nigeria. Um, And it suddenly wasn't a one-way story anymore, um, which actually then triggered a whole load of the work that led to me writing The Time Travelling Economist. I wanted to work out why.
0: One thing I'm curious about is you mentioned Sunusi um, and the Central Bank of Nigeria and this kind of increased calibre of quality when it came to policy there um i'm not I, I don't have the deepest knowledge of this but as i kind of see the devaluation situation and this kind of you know, dual currency system etc um all, all i see when i follow people from nigeria on twitter is complaints about the currency and complaints about inflation um what's 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 happened there what's what's i i think the big problem is a, a, a very high reliance on
1: oil and when the oil price is high it's very easy to have this nice strong currency And when the oil price collapses, it gets extremely tough. We saw it in 85 to 87. And the the currency went from one to four, which is an incredible devaluation, in fact, um, over two years. And there was massive cuts in spending. And those cuts in spending have actually been, you know, they they messed up the education progress that Nigeria was making. there's, there was a, a material rise in, in infant mortality. So you, there was a sense that you could actually measure the deaths caused as a result of the devaluation, as a result of the oil price crash. And it's just made the country very volatile. And the currency has been such an um, anti inflation tool of, of the authorities over so long. Pe- people can't borrow money there because there's no savings. Most people don't have any savings. So you don't borrow money. So interest rates don't really work in terms of slowing down an economy or, or reducing inflation. So so what do you use? You use the currency. So it becomes this totemic kind of sense of, of how do you value your country, your currency, or how do you hold down inflation? How do you measure the value of the work you're doing? You use a currency and try and peg it as close to the dollar as you can. And then it becomes unsustainable. Because when the oil price plunges and collapses, it, it's just not viable. So that's what happened in 2015. Different governor then it wasn't Sanusi decided not to devalue the currency with the falling oil price, or at least nowhere near as fast as as the oil price required, um, and that created distortions. They got resolved in 2017 when oil came back, but then when oil collapsed again in 2000, again the currency was held too strong. Again we had divergent exchange rates, and it's it's not a policy mix. You know we'd recommend and and what it led to was was foreign investors fleeing the country, at least portfolio investors um, but they're coming well, they are looking again at Nigeria because now we've got a more sensible exchange rate so it's uh it's one of those countries that keeps on coming back into the radar um for investors
0: it's the uh rocky of countries in some sense um <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you share the story behind Rendeavor? I know we've discussed this before. I'd love to have listeners kind of um, hear about this. I think this is one of the more interesting uh, progress generating companies out there and it was spun out of Renaissance Capital.
1: Yeah, that was that was Jennings, Stephen Jennings again, and some partners recognizing, I think, that where's the long-term growth in, where, how do you, you most benefit from the long-term growth of, of anywhere? And the first time I wanted to buy a flat, the advice I was given by an Australian army officer uh, in in Australia was buy the the flat, as, as close a house, as close to the centre of the city as you possibly can. And over time, that will do you well. If I'd done that in London in the early 90s, I would be a rich man. Unfortunately, I didn't. But but that sense of property and land is something to hold on to, is something which does well with an economy. is absolutely true. And in fact, yeah, it's something you will find across every social class, people want land, people want a house um, in every country. And I think Rendever said, well, if land is in such good supply, it's such relatively short supply towards the centre of any city. If you could organise that land and organise a city like a private city, if you like, that that works well, the infrastructure works well, electricity, water, everything's set up according to modern standards, that would make it even more valuable. And and with rising growth that we're gonna see in Africa due to demographics and due to the demographic dividend when it comes, that's where you should you should cash in. This is when you can cash in and and do, do extremely well. So Rendeva then went and bought negotiated plots of land. Um, near major cities or or just on on this kind of suburbs, but with access to them um, and started doing exactly that. And uh, Tattoo City in in, in Nairobi is is the one which is furthest advanced. Um, And there's schools there, there's houses there, there's restaurants there, there's factories there. Uh, More are coming all the time. Uh, And the land price that is now going up and and as they're selling it off to, to new people, people are being attracted to this kind of haven um, in Nairobi and it's, it seems to be working very well
0: Would you be able to share anything regarding the economics of um, Rendeva? I don't know if that's publicly available or not but it was, in terms of the initial investment it was, it, slash where they're going.
1: I was on the investment bank side research on the investment bank side and Rendev was a different group within the overall ring I don't know so I don't know sorry
0: so so one of my favorite um talks and presentations is by Bill Ackerman where he describes two companies that do a similar thing in the U.S. one is the Irvine company which essentially owns most of the land in Irvine county and is this 40-year project that Donald Bren the uh owner slash founder has kind of like been engaged in um Fascinating description of the kind of, as you mentioned, the ability to fund positive externalities and capture that as the main kind of landowner um, in the longer term. And I think that this it's a great model and urbanisation such a kind of key lever of progress. It's very exciting. Um, yeah. m- moving on, Duke or- of Westminster in the UK would probably
1: be able to back back up that argument as well. I think his family own a vast amount of central London and done <laughs> um, <laughs> extremely well off
0: the back of it. Yeah, it does seem to be uh, the case. Um, What are your favorite memories from your time at Renaissance Capital? Anything ranging from travel stories to interesting characters, um, things you got to witness historically? um, What what are some of those, just on a personal level?
1: No, there's just, uh, there's been, uh, you know, you're lucky, uh, I'm lucky enough to have experienced quite a lot. But um, at ING, it was probably having to introduce Mikhail Gorbachev, who had been the kind of general secretary of the Soviet Union back in the mid-80s and was seen as a guy who helped end the Cold War um introducing him at a conference was uh both terrifying uh because because that was emotional you know this is a guy when i was a kid you you worried you wouldn't you go to school and you'd have four minute warning perhaps and you wouldn't get home from school and you wouldn't see your family and that would be it. every day you worried about that um at a certain age uh, and then you got to be mid-teenager and you really didn't care about it. even at the end of the day it was too far away but so, so that was that was a very very emotional thing and he was a uh, he was very interesting about well he was passionate now about what well, was was passionate then about water and and saying that was the next big commodity that that over time we had to be pay more attention to so that was that was interesting um and then i was also lucky enough in rencap to have a, a client drop out of a trip we were doing in rwanda so the ticket he'd booked to go off and see these gorillas, it's um suddenly became open to me I didn't know I was going. So I, I turned up in my suit with my, my black smart city shoes and uh, my little iPhone, iPhone 4, to take photos of these gorillas surrounded by tourists with their massive cameras and their huge camouflage kit. And it was ridiculous. I was there with my little umbrella. like Hello, gorillas. It was, um, it was very funny. But they
0: were amazing. Love the gorillas. The little baby ones. Fantastic. I I don't know why I thought when you were saying gorillas I thought you meant like gorillas like the um, oh no that would have been cool yeah I I thought I I thought this was the beginnings of a story where you meet Paul Kagame and you help influence the um, um, policy there I was like wow that's like you know now I know where the origins of the Rwanda story comes from
1: I have met Paul Kagame a couple of times and he's a good I mean he's he's a very very interesting guy but no I okay so on that on that kind of scheme of things then being in in Ukraine in uh, the Soviet Union in ninety one that was and demonstrating there against the coup. That was the coup against Gorbachev, in fact. Uh, That was fascinating. Because if you turned up in this little square, your TV comes on, ballet plays, classical music. And it's like, what's happening? What's happening? There's a coup. There's a coup happening. So we all go down to the main square, Khrushchev, where a lot of the demonstrations in the Orange Revolution happened. And we're down there kind of ready to demonstrate. It's like 50 or 60 people, most of us foreign students, about 19, 20 years old, thinking, ooh, this is fun. Um, it was ridiculous and we got surrounded by all these special forces who came in with their huge great vans I mean there's like 200 of them and about 50 or 60 of us and this nationalist demonstrators there are the loud hailer and he's uh, he's saying we must stand here and stand up for Ukraine's right to be an independent country and bad Soviet coup people and then it got to about six o'clock in the evening we'd been there all afternoon and uh, and the Ukrainians started to drift off for supper and and when it got to about twenty or thirty of us, we thought maybe we ought to drift off as well, and so the demonstration ended because a load of students got a bit hungry and needed a beer, and uh, actually luckily Yeltsin did much more than that in Moscow and actually did uh, really change history. I, I failed to change history, I'm afraid in '91.
0: No, history is not over yet, as um, you know, un, un, unless one believes in Fukuyama. But I mean, you know, you can still change history in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. What one thing I'll kind of refer to here is my good friend, Hugh, he was in Russia for a year abroad, um, right as they invaded Ukraine. And he also went to one of the you know, anti-war demonstrations. Um, and one of the things he described, which I thought was pretty interesting, was he was talking about the anti-protester strategies that the police and you know, forces kind of use. And what they'd essentially do is, instead of trying to get everyone, they just target random people very aggressively to show, oh, this is possible in some sense. Um, quite shocking, but also I, I have a similar image because he's also, you know, from London, you know, went to school here and stuff. They
1: they weren't that sophisticated in 91. I don't think there'd been a demonstration in the Soviet Union for 50 years when we started ours. So it really was, um, they just didn't know what to do. They just surrounded us in the square and waited us out successfully, tempting us with little
0: glasses of beer. Uh, anyway, it. It,
1: it's,
0: yeah, it worked. Cool. So, what are some of the lessons you know on a more serious note, what are some of the lessons that you'd like to share with say a younger version of yourself from ten and a half years ago, twenty years ago um, uh, or even you know listeners who are like my age who are you know curious about kind of these these adventures and processes you can kind of engage in within frontier markets? What are some lessons like Well, I think the difficulty actually for you is and for anyone is the the
1: last twenty twenty five years of history generally hasn't been written yet. And yet, when it comes to financial markets, they're the ones that matter. So uh, not the only ones that matter, but they're the particularly relevant ones. So so actually, it's a problem. Um, I mean, I, I was in Egypt a few years back and f- discovered a book written by the World Bank's economist in the 1990s on Egypt, 92 or something he'd written it. It was brilliant. It told me more about Egypt in 2014 than anything else I could have written read, but it had been written in the early 90s. So there's this big gap, and I don't know how to fill it. I don't know what to advise to fill it. I mean, talk to people, but read what you can. Um, But there's a real, I think that's one of the problems about entering the market. And the longer you're in it, the more you understand, the more you've seen, the more experience you've got, it becomes much, much easier. Um, And in some ways, I was lucky, because a lot of these countries were not markets in the 80s. So there actually wasn't a kind of a history to that's relevant, particularly Eastern Europe it was communist didn't matter what it was like in the eighties because the nineties was so different um but increasingly, I think it would be useful to it's basically history books if you can find books for the last fifty years, you will learn i it's what I try and do I go to Pakistan there was a brilliant book about the not the cursed country, but it was a uh, and it's all even. very very good anyway you read that and again you get a sense of the country and its people and its cultural history and its political history and it just very very valuable helps jump start you when you're sitting down with people that you've got some sense of where they're from whether they've how they viewed the world and and life through their perspective just a tiny tiny bit but uh yeah intense reading would be my advice
0: do, do you think there's a significant gap in the current um, landscape of information, resources, knowledge, books, um, transcripts, et cetera, when it comes to understanding these markets in particular?
1: Probably. There's certainly no, I mean, there's very little, there's very little, which, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I think there is a gap. Um, there's too much information and too little at the same time. You can be absolutely drowned in what's happening today. But, but don't get a decent sense of what's happened over the last 25 years. That's a challenge. Um, and I don't know who's going to fill that gap.
0: How do you think Renaissance Capital's research um, did with regards to that? Um, I really enjoyed reading, for example, the Mongolian wolf narrative. Um, that's the only one I could find publicly, obviously, because I'm not a subscriber to their research. Because um, I don't own a fund, but yes.
1: I think they, they took the view, which is, again, a big factor why I joined them, that research was invaluable for, for frontier, um, and it's always nice to be told you're invaluable. So I, I was very pleased to go and work there. But they had this thing where they would hire very good people, and 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 produce these. When I was at ING, really frustratingly good reports, like 150-page tomes on Ukraine back in the mid mid 2000s. I remember vividly. It was brilliant, um, and it did give you some sense of of history, but. But in terms of learning from it now not that helpful because most of those 150 pages were about the corporate accounts of 2003 for each company and and that's not particularly valuable um, it's the it's the story uh, the narrative i think of, of, of how countries are developed those key turning points
0: and uh, that's the difficult stuff wonderful so final question um, as you move on to working at fim and you've join the buy side um, for our listeners. Is there anything that they can kind of share with you that would be useful for yourself as you kind of you know uh, engage, engage in this journey? Anything- I'd look, I'd, I'd, I'm looking for as much advice as I can get. It's um,
1: it's it is different, and I'm only beginning to learn how it's different to 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 view the through the prism of. It's all very well, Charlie, telling an interesting story about education, but uh, what do I buy today? Yeah, that is- and that that is quite a, quite a different story. Um, now, I, I think I still think that that structural work I've done will help, um, and and we'll see in the coming years whether it really does or not. We can look at our performance, but I think it will help. Try and uh, navigate which countries are the long-term successes and which are not. Which are trades or have to be just financial market trades for now, uh, and I uh, cannot be um, that that buy and hold near the center of a capital city like Rendever tries to do with its, with its, with its holdings. Um, so, yeah, hopefully
0: it's going to turn out well, but all, all advice is welcome. Fantastic. Well, hopefully if anyone else has spent a lot of time on the buy side and has endured you know, many cycles, as you know Charlie has, um, you guys can riff and get in touch. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Chris. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, thank you so much for making the time for this podcast. It's always incredible speaking to you um, and, and learning from uh, your observations and knowledge. It's fantastic. Pleasure. Pleasure. And um,
1: good luck um, with the fr- the, the, fr- the podcast future. I think this is brilliant. Awesome. Thank you.